Hi, my name is James Doty. Uh, I'm a neurosurgeon at Stanford and also a neuroscientist, compassion researcher, best-selling author. And today we're going to talk about the science of compassion and how it'll affect your life and everyone around you. Welcome back to part three of this binge-worthy, amazing episode of Curiosity Bites with my guest today, who is Dr. James Doddy. He's an inventor, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and has uh, patents on, uh, that are used on patients around the world as an entrepreneur. He's, the, he's a former CEO of Accuray, developer of the CyberKnife, a radio surgery technology used on every continent to treat solid cancers and other lesions on patients. And he's the author of the New York Times bestselling author, uh, book called Into the Magic Shop. I want to remind you that this episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by MagCast. MagCast, imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? You see, whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way for you to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of the market? And get to do it all at once. Well, there is a way to go from being invisible to getting a meeting with absolutely anybody. Find out more, go to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot co, C-O, where first-time publishers create thriving magazine businesses. Magcast.co. All right. Welcome back. As I said, I'm here with my Fabulous guest, Dr. James Doddy, who is the author of Into the Magic Shop. In the last section, we were talking about what it was like to go into the magic shop. We talked about hypervigilance. We talked about trauma. We talked about all those kinds of things. James shared with us a lot about his own background and the importance and value of finding a mentor. We even talked about Dragonfire. Now I want to talk a little bit and take it a bit further and go into the neuroscience of compassion because... Um, as I mentioned earlier, James is the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Um, and so, you know, you've got, like I said at the very beginning of the episode, uh, part one, I'm fascinated by hard sciences because I love that side, but I also am very fascinated by spiritual, quote, soft sciences. And here's a man who has really built his life around it. So neurosurgeon, neuroscience, and and then this great, amazing work with compassion. So where I want to start with is, let's just start with that. Let's start with the, what, what is the neuroscience? For those people who are going, oh, you know, I don't know about this woo-woo stuff, this compassion thing. It's very Dalai Lama and I don't have any robes. Um, talk to us about the science of it. Sure. So <clears throat> as we spoke in an earlier session, uh, within essentially every religion, you find compassion at the core. Mm -hmm. And the reason that is, is because experientially, this is an important part of who we are as a species. And in some ways you could argue, uh, define our species. In fact, Margaret Mead made a statement that as you transition to humans, the thing you see is that in the animal world, if an animal breaks a leg, the animal dies. Mm -hmm. uh, as humans evolved, and uh, one of the first things she found was a healed femur, meaning that the, the, the limb broke, but somebody obviously spent a lot of time caring for that person. Uh, 
for it to heal mm. and then and them to survive. And the point of that is that that is the nature of who we are as a species. But why is that? And uh, earlier we talked about this idea of <clears throat> our offspring, they don't run off into the forest or swim away. We have to take care of them for about 15 years or so. I, in my case, I have a daughter who's 38, maybe 38 years. But yes, but there's an immense amount of time, energy, resources necessary to care for another. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is that when you care for another, it sets off a whole chain reaction, not only in your brain, but the rest of your body. Uh, there are two parts of our autonomic nervous system. One is our sympathetic nervous system, which is associated with the flight, fight, fear, or freeze response. And then mm -hmm. the other is the parasympathetic nervous system or the rest and digest system. Mm -hmm. And these are uh, within the vagus nerve, which is a two-way pathway that's represented in most organs in the body, but uh, uh, definitely uh, the greatest is in the heart. And uh, what happens is, is that when you see a situation of a, your offspring suffering, uh, you feel compelled to do something. And um, this is also true when we evolved from the nuclear family to hunter-gatherer tribes, which is how we lived as a species uh, four to 6,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in groups of 10 to 50, if someone didn't do their job was suffering, uh, if you didn't intervene, it could put the whole group at risk. So again, another motivation to help. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that when you helped, a uh, chain of events would occur. When you alleviated the suffering of another, uh, those centers in your brain that are associated with reward and pleasure are stimulated. Mm -hmm. So when you care, you feel good. You feel mm -hmm. good about yourself. Uh, and then what happens is it has this rippling effect throughout your body. Uh, your immune system is boosted. Your uh, cortisol levels, which are stress hormones, are diminished. The uh, uh, expression of uh, inflammatory hormones or proteins is decreased. So uh, your heart rate is decreased, your blood pressure is decreased, your heart rate variability is increased, uh, which is a good sign. When you have mm -hmm. decreased heart rate variability, that's actually associated with the greatest incidence of sudden cardiac death. Right. So there are all of these events that occur within the brain, but also in your physiology when you care for another. Plus, when you shift from the sympathetic nervous system, your amygdala is shut down. Uh, all these areas that are associated with threat are shut down. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, when you shift, other areas actually are opened up. The part of our brain, what we call our executive control areas that uh, give us access to memories, prior experiences, work at their best, the um, parts of us that are associated with creativity work at their best. 
our productivity is increased because we're much more present and focused. So there's an immense amount of positive things that go on when you care for another. And this is the interesting thing, as we talked about, where people sit there and go, well, you know, compassion is for wimps. Uh, you know, who wants to be compassionate? That's weakness. But in fact, nothing could be further uh, from the truth. Interestingly, Google, uh, which you probably heard of. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, <laughs> they did an, uh, an experiment because they're all about analytics, right? And they wanted to know what makes a successful team, what makes a successful leader. And the founders who uh, I would suggest you have some degree of Asperger's, mm -hmm. uh, their belief was that you had to go to the top 15 schools, had to be in the top 5%. Otherwise, you couldn't really contribute to this great company. Mm -hmm. but over time, they hired or they acquired companies and many people did not have those uh, requisite uh, criteria or fulfillment. Right. Uh, so they looked at this whole group of people and it turns out after spending $50 million, what did they find? They found that the people who uh, led the most successful teams were people who were authentic, mm -hmm showed uh, their own failures and uh, recognized that uh, failure was a part of learning. Uh, they were not uh, hyper judgmental, uh, that um, actually the correlation with what school you went to and how, you know, uh, high you, how high you were in the school had zero impact on anything. Mm -hmm. uh, nor did domain experience particularly. It all had to do with authenticity, caring, compassion, being thoughtful, being non-judgmental. And uh, uh, now they could have given me 49 million and I could have told them in a day uh, uh, that truth, uh, but... Uh, uh, like I said, you and I could have partnered on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd split it with you if we could do that. But the fact of the matter is they did do that and that's the results. And now there are a variety of companies and other situations that have repeatedly, repeatedly demonstrated that when you create an environment of what we call psychological safety, where people are, don't feel they're being judged, when they're being accepted, when they're allowed to be authentic, when they're allowed to fail, uh, those people will work harder, be more thoughtful, be better prepared, uh, to lead a company. Uh, there was a guy named, uh, I think his first name might have been David, but I'm not sure. His last name was Carnes. But he worked in the Australia area, and he had a, a, a led a, a very large company. And uh, he hired a group to come in and evaluate the company. Mm -hmm. You know, one of these, uh, I guess they call them 360 reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he got the report back from these people. And basically, they said, we have to tell you in our assessment of all of these companies, you had the worst score of any person we've ever tested. Wow. And your employees hate you. They don't like working here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he went home to his wife. And he said, you know, I can't believe these jerks. They 
said this about me. It's so ridiculous. You know, uh, what do you think of what they said? And she said, well, they're right. And he said, what do you mean they're right? And she, and she said, well, I've been telling you that for 20 years. He said, what are you talking about? She said, you've just never listened before. Mm -hmm. And uh, he suddenly, if you will, uh, found Jesus. And uh, he changed everything. And what he realized was that he had been trained through fear himself and his own insecurities. Yep. And this was the style that he had utilized on his employees. And what it did was it made them very fearful to make decisions. Yep. It made them to second guess themselves all the time. It made them feel that if they gave the wrong answer, they would get fired. And as a result, the company was not thriving. So over a two year period, he changed everything. And in fact, he actually ended up spending a lot of time with a Buddhist monk and started meditating and getting insight and self-awareness. And when they reevaluated him, I think two or three years later, the company had done a 180 degree reversal. Beautiful. You know, uh, parents or, or uh, the employees loved him. Uh, he was very well respected. Productivity had dramatically increased. Shareholder value had dramatically increased all because he changed his view of himself and the world. And I think this is the gift that compassion offers to everyone if they will just listen. Yeah, it's, I mean, that Google research is pretty, <clears throat> pretty profound because I, uh, again, it allows people to recognize the hard uh, bottom line of this quote soft idea um you know i mean there are so many things you you talked about there that i can i want to unpack um i mean first of all one of the things that most people may not be familiar with is oxytocin i know you are obviously um but this is also known as the bonding hormone. It's what mothers are flooded with when a baby is born. But what people don't know is the research is there that the fathers are flooded with it and they didn't push the baby out, but they get flooded with it at the same time. And if you think about, you know, I always use babies as the example. I wrote about it in my last book um, because if you think about it, you just created um, a shitting, sleeping, screaming machine and you're madly in love with it. And that's all it pretty much does. It doesn't do much anything else. And yet you're madly in love with it. And the reason you're madly in love with it, there's all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons is that your brain is designed to be in love with it because you have oxytocin. And people are, oh, well, that's very fascinating, but I can't give birth to my staff. No, you can't. But what you don't know is that when you show kindness, a random act, no strings attached, kindness to another, oxytocin floods your brain and theirs. And if anybody sees it because of neurons, uh, mirror neurons in the brain, they also get a flood of it and they ain't even part of it. They don't even know what's going on. And so now we've got a bonded community. We've built a culture as a company where everybody deeply cares about each other. And then you add to that, this other piece, and you, I know you can take all this a million miles further than where I can, but then you've got this vagus nerve that you're talking about 
which is, you know, connecting the three brains, the brain in your coconut, the brain in your heart, and the brain in your gut, and you've got the, you know, you've got the neurons in these places, and the gut responses, and, and the heart response, and the head response, and all those things are going on, plus all the chemistry, it's pretty amazing to understand the, the neuro, that's why I wanted to go to the neuroscience of this, pretty amazing to understand that there is a superb neuroscience that gives you hard results that builds you a better business and a better culture makes you a better husband and a better father and a better mother and a better daughter than you ever possibly could by staying locked in the amygdala, staying locked in the fear, fight, flight, etc., freeze location and looking at the world through a hypervigilant screen of, oh my God, what could happen? Yeah, shit's gonna couldn't happen. I know that. I've got that wired into my brain, just like you do with our childhoods. But I also know that I can override that now. But that took time. That took focus. That took meaning and intention every single day. And I think that that's what people have got to really grasp because we don't like to do hard things. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I, I think that's part of the problem is people... <coughs> especially in modern society, somehow think that they should be able to buy this without <laughs> any of the suffering. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little pill, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, it does take these life experiences, and it doesn't mean everyone has to potentially suffer like you and I, but they also have to understand, though, that the nature of living is suffering and that uh, they can certainly learn something from whatever experience uh, uh, they're having. Uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned oxytocin. There's a study that was done that, so you can give intranasal oxytocin, believe it or not. And this is what they do in certain research studies. And if you were part of a tribe, well, by ever, whatever term you wish to identify that uh, what a tribe is, and you give it to people who are members of the tribe, when they look at another member, they want to hold them, hug them, et cetera. If they give it and you present to them someone who's not part of the tribe, it has no effect. Really? Correct. And so, uh, and this is why in some ways we have tribalism. You mm -hmm. know, we have people who have a tendency and whether it's through socioeconomic, political, whatever separator you choose, uh, once you identify with the tribe and someone's outside of it, they will not have that same response. Now, the good thing, though, is that you can overcome that by looking at the other person and saying, what do we have in commonality? Like, I want my children to succeed. I you know, want the best for America or whatever it is. But once you start having these little uh, aspects where there's this uh, commonality, then you start feeling closer and closer together. And this is one of the challenges, you know, we teach a course on compassion cultivation. And, you know, it's easy to love those, your offspring, it's easy to love friends, it starts getting harder when you get to employees, people outside your company, your competitor, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's a hard task that doesn't happen overnight. But if you're able actually to do that, 
it also bodes very, very well in terms of just not only living your life, but in terms of interacting uh, with other individuals outside of your common group. And in fact, in many ways, it can be very helpful for a company because the goal isn't to fight. The goal is to win within your environment, mm-hmm. but it's not to destroy someone else. Uh, so I think those are uh, uh, important rules. The other thing is we do talk about oxytocin a lot because it's important, but depending on where you're at in the brain, and we've looked at these other pathways using something called, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, That's cranial flatulence. Yeah, yes, right it, it, exactly. Um, <laughs> basically, what we do is we implant a virus that uh, attaches to neurons. And they actually have these uh, sensors attached to them that uh, will turn on and off the neuron in certain wavelengths of light. Okay. Or light. It's called actually optogenetics. Right. And actually, we did a study at Stanford where we examined this. And what was interesting is that if you took a group of rats uh, and you let's say male rats who are very uh, uh, domain specific. Mm-hmm. And if you put a male rat and then in, introduced other rats in, if you did not turn on uh, or if, if you allowed him to be normal, he would again get to an aggressive interaction with the rat. If you actually turned on the light, he would become very docile and kind and just sort of show uh, positive behaviors like smelling and things like this, uh, mm-hmm. uh, different parts of the animal. And then the other side of it is if you took a mother rat, uh, uh, and then, you know, when the child is, or when an offspring is born, they actually have a tendency to collect them to be near them. And there are actually ways in which you can separate them and uh, measure how long it takes for her to collect them. Mm. If you, do nothing. She'll, of course, collect these quite quickly. If you turn it off, she'll just let them sit around for a long period of time. Wow. And, and these are not all just oxytocin. Depending no. on where you're at, it could be serotonin, it could be dopamine. So while oxytocin is very important, there are these other hormones, depending on the location, uh, that can also have an effect. But the fundamental point is the same. Within these nurturing pathways, uh, when they are stimulated, you care. And uh, in some ways it's good, in some ways it's bad because you think, wow, you know, that brings it down to this very basic level that you can turn it on and you can turn it off, which is true. But there are also examples though uh, in humans where there are people who are born with fewer oxytocin receptors. Right. So those actually are often associated with individuals being, um, uh, what's the word, Um, uh, (laughs) non-monogamous. Okay. Um, And uh, and it's also true in other uh, species as well. There's a vole actually uh, where the same type of thing occurs. Uh, So, can't we develop the? Can't we develop receptors though? Uh, you're born with what you have, and this is the problem. This is why there's some people 
uh, who just are naturally are so kind, so compassionate, they don't need any training. Then there are other people who are sort of the sociopath, psychopaths, who no matter what you do, it's just not going to uh, have an impact. And unfortunately, in uh, leadership environments, by the way in which we reward them, you get a fair number of the sociopath types who are running some of these companies. Absolutely. Unfortunately. And that's why we have so many of the other problems. And this is also true of uh, leaders of countries, as we see here in the United States and in Hungary and Poland and some of these other people. And the challenge there is that they create a false narrative that they sell to people who are vulnerable. And uh, because these people want to believe in something that will help them who they are disadvantaged oftentimes. And that's why you end up with these populist environments. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. And if you look at world history, of course, they all fail. Uh, but very few people have a long-term uh, perception of world history. Yeah, very few people have a, a long-term view. Uh, most people are, are driven by instant gratification, and they see, you know, when they run that cycle of, of being a victim, then they need a hero, right? And, um, and if the hero happens to be a narcissistic sociopath, then you end up with Pol Pot, you end up with Starling, you end up with Idi Amin, you end up with uh, Rodrigo right now in the Philippines, you, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, you know, and that's just to name a few. You, you, you missed the United States. Yeah, well, you know, you're American, so you can say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but it, it's definitely, you know, for me, it's fascinating because uh, in a conversation I've had recently or many times recently is that people say, you know, you know, there's so much like, don't you see the change of there's so many people who are who are deeply loving and deeply compassionate. And I say, yeah, I do see it. Um, and they said, but you're talking about these. Other yeah, hold on a second. You see, you've got this political left who are saying, you know, everything has to be politically correct, which actually sets up victimhood. Everybody's a victim of something. Everybody's a victim of some mistake they made 10 years ago that everybody, you know, now you're, you know, your statue should come down and, you know, you're even in the statue in your head about, you know, you didn't think you were being an asshole at the time, you know, punishing Kevin Hart for making gay jokes 11 years ago is ridiculous in my mind. So this just victimizes everybody. And when you have a victim, you need a hero and the hero is going to be a command and control loony who says i can save you and only i can save you and so you get this horrible horrible cycle that is actually about disempowerment of the individual and the problem is with this hero is it's more disempowering right it right. just creates that fear cycle and more and more disempowering so as we in the in the final section i'm going to go into your connection to the dalai lama and being part of that that foundation and, and your work with religious leaders in bringing compassion to the geopolitical situation. Um, but before we go to that, I really want us as individuals to stop and say, okay, hold on. Is there a, like we've gotten right now that there is a strategic advantage as a human being 
to being um, more compassionate, to being kinder. Um, and one of the things you were saying earlier about the oxytocin not really having the same impact for somebody from outside the tribe, um, and one of the whole principles actually is the principle behind this show is Curiosity Bites, because I believe, I, not the truth, I believe that curiosity is the cure for the world. And the reason for that is because if I'm, I, I, my statement is that questions require answers. And when you get an answer that you can make the person right or wrong, curiosity requires understanding, which is in deeper and deeper and deeper. And as we go deeper in curiosity, the walls fade away, the tribe changes, and now we can include anyone and everyone by simply looking at, well, how are we similar? And tell me, I don't understand. Let me understand that. Let me get to have that. Um, which again, now we've got floods of oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin and all the great stuff. Um, is, there, is there a way that you know because um, of all the research that you've done and all those things, is there a way for us to tap into that faster or, or is it curiosity or, or it's something else? Well, I think curiosity is a good term. Uh, uh, I think what it really is, is recognizing the dignity of every person and not uh, mischaracterizing them and understanding that you know, people make decisions for all sorts of reasons, and one could be out of fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, we talked about tribe, it can be their tribe sees the world a certain way. Yeah. I think what you have to do is you have to, if you want to use the term, have an open heart, and just be able to sit with somebody and be non judgmental, and try to understand their perspective of the world and how they got there. And uh, I think that allows you to be in the same room with someone and potentially change uh, their mind. You know, there, my limited experience has been telling somebody they're an idiot or they're stupid for their opinion does not change their mind. It may make you feel better, but it never changes uh, no, someone's tend, tend mind. To work. Uh, no. And this is unfortunately the narrative of some people, whether you're on the right or the left. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, being able to sit down with somebody and say, you know, I have my opinion. I don't understand your opinion exactly. Can you tell me how you got there? Mm -hmm. And the thing is that when you interact with somebody in the context of showing respect, dignity, et cetera, they're much more likely than to sit there and go, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe uh, I've been a little harsh here or maybe the justification I use for X, Y, and Z is actually not correct. And uh, I now can understand your position, uh, but you have to do it that way. It is never, never, never going to work. You know, I'm sure you've experienced it. When you tell somebody they're wrong, they don't sit there and go, yeah, hey, you're, you know, you're right, man, I'm wrong. They invariably dig in deeper, even though they're 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And and this then goes outside the boundaries of truth and logic. It simply goes to, uh, you know, protect their own ego. And so you have to be cognizant of that uh, reality, you know, before you start going down that path. You know, I can have my opinions about uh, Mr. Trump. 
uh, and I can justify them. But that being said, I'm also happy to sit down with somebody and understand how you know they look at him as a person of uh, truth or honesty or how he's improving America, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it, it is hard because, you know, so often we're attached to our truth, but it's not the truth. But, but you just said it right there. Compassion is not about it being easy. And I think that that's the mistake people make. Right. Because they look at certain people and they say, oh, you're very compassionate. And, and yes, you're right. That person may have had some natural predisposition based on their history, based on their childhood, based on their genetics, based on their brain. Sure. But most of the people who are really compassionate don't come from that background. Compassion is not easy. And I want people to get that. So if you're waiting around for it to get easy, get over it. It's not right. going to be easy. It, real compassion comes out of like, right now I'd really like to smash you in the face with a blunt object, but I'm going to hold a space where I can see you beyond my own judgments of you. And I can experience you in a way that is beyond my own conditioning of you based on the fact that you're not in my tribe. And I think that's a really important point you made there, James, is that compassion is not about it being easy. It's about you being willing to have the intention to understand at a deeper level what you, what is there beyond your bravado. And we have all got our bravados. Well, do you know a guy named uh, Glenn Beck? Have you ever heard of that name? Of course. So Glenn's a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I invited him to, uh, to come to Stanford. And actually, he had tracked me down and I ended up being on his show a few times. And then I invited him to Stanford. Really? But, uh, yeah. Uh, and it was interesting because I had never got any left wing hate mail before. Ah. Right? And but you know, you would get these letters from people that would say, I can't believe you would invite this horrible person to your show. You know, I've come to all your events and this person is disgusting, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And uh and it was sort of uh interesting because I never really looked at it that way. No. Uh uh and he ended up being on the show. We had a, a great conversation, a great time. We found many common points of interest um you know so it, it shows you uh how that can in fact be the case now what's interesting is since trump came in he was a very big anti-trumper and then suddenly he's now for trump and uh i remember uh, when trump was running and glenn beck did not say anything good about him Mm -mm. But there again, neither did Lindsey Graham and a bunch of others. Uh, well, exactly. Cruz, who are now fully inserted as, as um, let's just call them, um, what do we call them? Suppositories now for Mr. Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so it was sort of interesting because I, I got to know Glenn. I liked him. I spent a fair amount of time with him. He actually had sort of changed his show and was much more thoughtful, caring, and uh, but that being said, uh, you know, he published something recently that I saw and I called him up and he actually got mad at me and sent me a note saying, uh, 
you know, if we didn't vote for Trump, America was going down the toilet or something like that. Mm. Uh, so it shows you, you could have these fluxy <laughs> relationships, but, uh, um, but it isn't easy and you have to go out of your way and you have to listen to people and you have to respect them. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. And if you don't, nothing's going to change. Um, so. That's what it takes for all of us. So we're at the end of part three of our fabulous show, our binge worthy episode with Dr. James Doty. And we're going to come back for part four. As I said, if you want to get a hold of James's book, it's called Into the Magic Shop. It's a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. It's been endorsed by some pretty powerful individuals. We'll talk a little bit about that when we come back in our final part of this, this uh, interview series. Again, my name is Dove Barron. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can go and find us on Curiosity Bites on Facebook. There's a group right there where we're talking about these subjects and so much more. And if you have not subscribed to the show, I highly recommend that you do because there are amazing, amazing interviews. And on top of all that, we are now going to be releasing the video episodes through our Patreon channel. If you go to Patreon and just look for the Dragon's Lair, you'll find us there. And you can find us all about that, and you'll see all these really cool interviews uh, on video with these amazing human beings that I'm so blessed and honored to have as my guests. So stay tuned, and we'll come back in just a moment for part four of this amazing conversation with Dr. James Doty. We'll see you very soon. Stay curious.